Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless Possible. And welcome to Shameless, the celebrity and pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne journalist Michelle Andrews, that would be me, and Zara McDonald, that would be you. Hello. Welcome. Coming up on today's show, our very random and almost inexplicable obsession with tonal loungewear, plus why in the world does Dr. Phil still have a platform and not a practicing certificate, and then a deep dive on too hot to handle and female agents of chaos. But first, Zara, I would typically ask you how your week was. Last week on the podcast, we said that's an irrelevant question now. None of us are doing anything with our weeks. (laughs) I've just Googled good conversation starters. And thanks to gifts.com, they have 225 conversation starters for any situation. My conversation starter for you today, Zara McDonald, what's something not many people know about you? (laughs) I have so many regrets for changing the start of the structure of this episode. What is something, in fairness to the listeners, we come on mic here twice a week and spin way too much shit and probably talk way too much about ourselves. I doubt there are many weird facts that I haven't sort of exposed on this podcast. Have I told you, by the way, we got a DM from a listener this week who was like, thank you, girls, for telling me to shower at night. I've started showering at night instead of mornings, and it's revolutionized my life. And I was like, okay, I, I'm, a, I'm a night showerer. If anything, I shower twice a day. But when on earth did you and I tell the listeners to start showering at night? I can't remember that. We've been doing this for so long that I just forget what I've said on this podcast. No, I remember that, although that is true. I often forget what I say on this podcast, and it comes back to me later. We said, oh God, now I'm just going to forget the context. I remember us talking about night showers and people saying that morning showers were better and we were like, no, night showers are much cleaner because then you go to bed clean and wake up clean, whereas going to bed after a long day is a little, dare I say, rank. Anyway, what is something that people don't know about me? I don't know, that I have siblings. Do people know that? That's yeah, I not, say that. Oh, come on, people know that. That's the most boring one ever. You've got to give me something better than that before you can give your recommendation. That I'm a fake blonde? <laughs> 
It's my mission to give something better back to you when you ask me that same question, which will not be hard because those were two pretty despicable answers. What could you think of one for on my behalf? What's something not many people know about Zara? I don't know, something basic like your favourite food, like your go-to favourite brain food when you want to concentrate is black rice with salmon from Miss Chu in Melbourne. Oh, true. And if I had to live on one food for the rest of my life, I'd probably just have hot chips. (laughs) (laughs) Chippies, yum. Anyway, give me a recommendation for the week. My recommendation this week, I was feeling a bit ugh this morning when I woke up. I feel like everybody is having those days every so often at the moment. And I just felt like I had a little bit on my mind. So I went for a walk and I listened to Daniel Radcliffe on Desert Island Discs. This came out a couple of months ago. I just never got around to listening to it. And it was such a delight for my morning. Like I loved it so much. I love Daniel Radcliffe so much. He had this really beautiful insight about how when he meets people now, he's terrified that people will think he is a brat or not a very good person because he's a child star. So he has this fear about people's assumptions. So he is desperate to always make sure that people know that he's not a terrible person. Isn't that so interesting? What is he doing with himself these days? Is he just, I guess, relaxing, taking it easy? He worked so much in early life, I would not begrudge him for wanting to take a breather in his 20s and 30s. He's done a bunch of like weird indie films. Sounds like a very Daniel Radcliffe thing to do. <laughs> Doesn't it? At that point where you don't need to make money, like it's the it's the ultimate question. What would you do if you kind of made all the money you ever needed to make in the early years of your life? Like what? how would you see out the rest of your life? And he's just doing whatever he wants. It's wonderful to see. So I couldn't recommend that more. I love Desert Island Discs so much and I love Daniel Radcliffe and it was very wholesome and very lovely. Am I meant to ask you not how your week was but what's something the world doesn't know about you, Michelle? Yeah, you are supposed to ask me that. Look, I have something that I think some of the listeners, like OG listeners, will know about me because I would have said it in the early days, I'm sure. I don't think I've said it recently though. I have the most intense fear of Dr. Zeus. And when I say fear, it's not like, oh, I don't like it. I really just would prefer not to watch it. I have a fear. Like I I hate seeing anything to do with Dr. Zeus. I hate Cat in the Hat. I hate the Grinch. Like the Grinch in particular makes me feel so uncomfortable and so fearful and I have no idea why. Like I'm a 26-year-old woman and if Dr. Seuss, anything Dr. Seuss comes up on my television screen, if my niece Amelia is given a Dr. Seuss book, anything, I freak out. Like Mitch thinks it's hilarious but it's gotten to the point now where he doesn't even joke about it because if he brings it into my life, I will spiral. Your memory is short because for Christmas I dressed up as the Grinch and we told the listeners that you hate Aww. Dr. Zeus. So you've literally just dug yourself a grave because you told me my answers were terrible and I just wanted to watch you kind of stretch out that answer thinking it was a really revolutionary one when we literally talked about it a couple <laughs> of months ago. In my defence, we have done so much random shit on this podcast. You're, you're right. I came down way too hard on your answer and then I gave a pretty shocking one myself. Something else that people don't know about me, let me think. Oh God, oh, Zara. Struggling would, you be, a bit. would you be able to have one? Would you be able to have one for me? I gave you one. Well, I've got something, but I don't know if it's news you want to share yet. Michelle's engaged. Oh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, that was a joke. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, you're getting a dog. Oh, so true. We are getting our dog on Friday and I could not be more excited. We have wanted a dog for so long. We basically, I'm not even kidding, we basically moved apartment 
because we wanted to be able to get a pet and we thought it would be a really great time, particularly now to get a puppy because we can invest so much love and energy into this dog, which I think they deserve, particularly in the early stage of their life. So Yes, we're getting a dog. His name is Benji. I'm so friggin' excited to bring him home. That will be on Friday. It will be one of the best days of my life already. I already know it. Zara, I do want to give an update though briefly on the Margot Robbie mission before we jump into today's episode. We are in stage one, phase three. I want to tell the listeners that we've hit a bit of a roadblock. (laughs) I think we hit a roadblock, uh, you know, three stages ago or three phases ago when we began this mission, but onwards. We've hit a roadblock. Now, not from Margot herself. I'm pretty sure that this hasn't gotten to Margot yet. Where it has gotten, my dear listeners, is we've contacted a certain hot relative who was very, very helpful and very kind indeed. We've contacted a few people in Margot's team. Some of those people, hot relative, it doesn't really, doesn't really sound so vague, does it? It's kind of narrows it right down. Connect the dots. Well, I'm sure every Robbie has very good genes, but one particular Robbie we've had personal contact with and they were <laughs> extremely helpful. Thank you, thank you to that particular Margot relative if they are listening. But we have had contact with someone in Margot's team and they weren't super keen on the idea. However, I am not a giver upper. I am not going to lie down and let this not happen. This is friggin' happening and I'm going to keep pushing until I get a personal no from Margot, the woman herself. This is quite funny because as the listeners would know, I am a giver upper. Like I sense a small element of failure and I'm like, meh, but because I have to do this for you, like we have to, we have to keep pushing. But yes, they don't seem particularly interested and it's probably because we're looking at a little bit nuts. I, I haven't sent them. If anyone uh, follows us on Instagram at Shameless Podcast, not only did we write an open letter to Margot Robbie this week, which I will link in the show notes, we also dressed up as Margot Robbie from Birds of Prey, her character Harley Quinn. I'm going to send that to this team member who said no to us and hopefully we can get across the line. Maybe we will need to start some form of online petition. If you have any ideas, I am open to any and all ideas. DM me on Instagram, put a message in the Facebook group. The more ideas, the better. On to, though, Zara, our first segment for today. We want to talk about tonal loungewear, which is a bit of a gear shift, but here we are. <laughs> like, no explanation required. Like, that's it. No, it was quite funny this week. We have a, a window in Slack where we pop all our ideas that come up through the week, anything, any story that we want to talk about, and I just put a screenshot of, like, a beige tracksuit and said, I think I want to talk about this. And I don't know why. I think it's because tonal loungewear is having a moment right now and it's having a moment because we've got nothing else to do, nothing else to care about and suddenly beige tracksuits, the most boring form of fashion you can find are the things that are the most sought after. Exactly. Now, if you guys are listening to this and thinking beige tracksuits and you're imagining like a zipper jacket, not that kind of tracksuit that we're talking about. We're talking about like classic 80s sweats, like in the very American form sweats. I don't think there's another word that we can even use to describe it that well, where the jumper, it's normally a jumper, right? The jumper and the tracksuit pants either match or they're like block colors or they're neutral tone or they're pastels. Like surely you guys have seen this on your Instagram stories because I know for a fact it is all over my Instagram story right now. And Zara, you said just before, this seems to be a trend. We're seeing it everywhere. According to Vogue, it is the trend. They published a couple of weeks ago an article (laughs) called, shut up, this is my research. No, but isn't that a sad like indication of the state of our world right now? But the thing, the fashion item that is having a moment 
is a brown tracksuit. It's so embarrassing, but I also friggin' love it. So Vogue published an article called The Celebrity Approved Guide to Wearing Sweats. Their angle was very much like Zoom conference call chic. Like you want to log on to your little conference calls while you're in this pandemic, but you don't want to look like you tried too hard. You just want to look effortlessly cool. And apparently a matching tracksuit is the way to do that. This is a direct quote. Try color blocking your sweatpants and sweater for a high impact look for your next virtual hang. Oh my God, this is amazing. And it's so not below me at all, like in any way, shape or form. I want to color block my loungewear so bad. I kind of want like cotton linen pants and like a brown top. And my favorite part about this, like my favorite part about fashion is in the last couple of weeks, I've been kind of Googling this stuff madly and trying to find some stuff to buy and wear around the house because I realized I don't have that much stuff to wear around the house. And I thought I was quite revolutionary on this. Like I thought I was early to it. And then I started seeing everyone I know post about like looking for recommendations. Like I saw Liv Rogers asking for recommendations about tracksuits. I saw Gemma Watts ask for loungewear. And I realized that once again, and it happens all the time when I go shopping, I'm not searching for something out of my own creativity. I'm literally just a victim to trends, but so subconsciously I don't realize it. Does that happen to you? I, I just love so much that you thought you were an early adopter of this humble <laughs> It happens to me even like two months after it happens to you. So you're on the trend. I feel like your your timing is pretty good in that you're there. Like when Liv Rogers and Jem Watts jump on the bandwagon, and if you guys don't know those girls, they are massive friends of the show. They are awesome creators. Go look them up on Instagram. We love Liv Rogers and we love Gemma Watts. But when they're there, you're there. I'm not on the train until maybe oh. like two months later, by which time it has funneled its way down from Vogue and Harper's Bazaar into like, I don't know, friggin' news.com today, you trend piece. <laughs> You're like a couple of carriages behind on the same train. Like you're getting to the stop eventually. It's just taking a little longer to pull into the station. I mean, I think I realized how little has been happening in my life and how much I've missed clothes when I saw uh, the fashion influencer Rosalia Russian announce a collaboration with the brand Atois for loungewear and I screenshotted it so that I would and put it in my favorites so that I would remember it's there and shop for it later and I told you about it and I was like why am I so irrationally excited about the birth of tracksuits like I will more than definitely buy something from that collection and it was the highlight of my day. Well it's like pandemic chic right like if we're gonna glow up in this pandemic era the only way to do it is to invest in ludicrously priced loungewear. Harper's Bazaar announced that we have, this was the title of their article, Zara, we have officially entered the era of sweatpants. And they said, this is a direct quote, maybe it's the birth of a new wave of feminism. Hold on. All right, let's back up. What? (laughs) I don't know. I tried so hard to figure out what the point was. But basically, Harper's Bazaar did very much what Vogue did. She had a whole bunch of photos of celebrities in sweatpants. But Harper's Bazaar took it so far to say that us wearing sweatpants at home and paying ludicrous prices for them is a new wave of feminism. And I would love for someone to explain to me how that's a thing, but apparently it's a thing. (laughs) It just feels like a few too many dots for me. I'm not going to lie. But I think what I'm finding interesting about this period when it comes to clothing is 
it's been an interesting time for me because it's kind of proved that maybe I do actually dress up for other people and not myself. Like I, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, it would have been the first to say I dress for myself. I dress in a way that makes me feel good and makes me feel creative. But now that I'm at home, I'm like not making any effort whatsoever with what I'm wearing. I think I've worn active wear for the last four weeks straight. And so I wonder if other people are feeling the same, like coming to this recognition that we're dressed for the outside world. And maybe that's not for affirmation from the outside world, but it's like a presentation to the outside world kind of thing, or it's how we separate our home selves and our outside selves. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. As you were saying that as well, Zara, it also occurred to me that we're probably seeing this trend be so prevalent and so pervasive because influencers are jumping on it so heavily. Like what are fashion influencers going to be able to sell or market to their followers right now? Fashion influencers are not going to be putting on mini skirts or crop tops or any of those kind of trend pieces that were selling two months ago because nobody's wearing that stuff around their house. So it makes logical sense that what they're making cool now is track pants. It's just like a glow up on what we're already wearing. I do want to know if our accountant Julian happens to be listening to this episode of Shameless, I would like to know if Zara and I invested in like I don't know, some loungewear for our Instagram account, is that tax deductible? Because we have pushed the boundaries on what we consider tax deductible. And often Julian kind of looks at our bass statement and is like, no, girls. I don't think, first and foremost, there's a flaw in your question. I don't think Julian's ever listened to the podcast ever, but I are they tax deductible? Like, surely we can swing something. If you see us, if you see us posing on Instagram and loungewear, you, you'll never find out whether it was tax deductible or not. We'll just never tell you. And also, Julian, if you're listening, I may or may not have now spent $300 on my plight to get Margot Robbie on the podcast, so that will also be on the best statement. You've called the Shameless Hotline. Please leave a message at the beep. Just a quick little message to say I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I'm currently living in a very isolated Western Australian town that has one petrol station, one grocery shop and a bakery. And while the whole world is in isolation, I am feeling extremely isolated. All my friends and family are in Perth and I'm up here for work. So with the regional restrictions, I'm not actually allowed to return to Perth indefinitely. So I've been really enjoying listening to the podcast while I go for walks each afternoon. And I'm so grateful to feel like part of a community of like-minded people and to get to listen to kinds of conversations that I would have with my friends back in Perth. Thanks for everything that you do, girls. We love it. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we bring you the top five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity and pop culture news cycle. Michelle, Elizabeth, I want Margot Robbie on the podcast. Andrews, what have you got for me today? That's my name. Don't wear it out. My first story, Alan Pompeo comes under fire for for resurface remarks about Harvey Weinstein victims. That is from E! News. That is obviously not a laughing matter. Zara, this is a fascinating story. A video of Alan Pompeo resurfaced on Twitter this week. In that video, she says, and I quote, it takes two to tango when it comes to sexual assault or sexual harassment allegations leveled at people like Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, it it was a kind of article that you and I both saw and the headline seemed so extreme that we both thought it was clickbait. Like it's one of those things that you see and you think it, it certainly can't be as bad as the headline says. 
but it was. And I think one thing we've gone back and forth on a lot when it comes to people in the public eye making very questionable, problematic comments is what is like the statute of limitations on saying something messed up in the public domain. This doesn't feel long enough. This was from July 2018. So this was, you know, not even two years ago. I think the comments were made way too recently for us to to consider that argument. They're really, really bad. She said, I think we bear, and she, when she said we, she means women, some responsibility. Not all, but it takes two to tango for sure. That's not to blame the victim. That's just to say I did go into a room with Harvey Weinstein. I sat at a table with him. I had a probably two and a half hours with him. He never said anything inappropriate to me. He never made any sort of physical advance to me. I would not have gone into that room at night. I just, oh, it frustrates me no end hearing those quotes read back out. And if you guys haven't seen the video, I do urge you to Google it and go have a watch because it is as bad, every bit as bad as what it sounds. I am particularly disappointed by how Alan Pompeo has handled this since it came out. I think celebrities should be good enough to just apologize unreservedly by now. I think her statements were absolutely victim blaming. And it doesn't excuse victim blaming to say, I'm not going to blame women or I'm not going to put this on women. But like, as soon as you say, but dot, 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 you were about to victim blame women. And the way she handled this on Twitter on Friday, our time was just baffling. And this is one of her quotes directly. For those who feel offended or are taking this personally, this panel was two plus years ago and it was way before the whole stories of the women came out. Now, first of all, for those who feel offended, like isn't that just textbook shitty apology speak? For those who feel offended, no, for the people that your actions offended, don't put the blame even onto the people who are angry about this, particularly when those people are sexual assault survivors. The other aspect of her handling of this that I hated was she then came out with a tweet and said that the New York Times story was not out. So she said that none of the actual reporting on the full stories was out at the time that she gave these quotes. People then went back and looked at the dates and the New York Times story wasn't only published Alan Pompeo had shared the Time's Up movements and quotes from that New York Times story on her Instagram profile before she gave this speech. So to come out and give all these excuses that aren't only irrelevant but are false is inexcusable. Like, I think just apologize. Just come out and say it how it is. You fucked up. Yeah, and it's surprising to me that someone like Ellen Pompeo, who has spoken pretty vocally about different causes in the past, would say something so ignorant and close-minded and controversial and also not have the guts to, as you say, come back and apologize properly and understand the weight of her words. So a pretty, a really surprising story to me, a terrible one and surprising. On a little bit of a lighter note, Mish, and just on the theme of our pronunciation arguments I thought it was Pompeo am I wrong Pompeo Pompeo Pompeo. I'm suddenly starting to think that I'm wrong in most of these cases (laughs) (laughs) I would love for Oliver Keogh to get back to us on how he pronounces Alan Pompeo maybe you can get him to leave like a little voice note on your mobile we have to quickly say back on last week's Haas versus Haas debate Ollie's best friend Ryan messaged me this morning and he said, Zara, I've been approached three to four times a day since the episode went live with people coming up and abusing me about the pronunciation. And he said that he said to Ollie that he actually pronounces it Hass, but some people pronounce it Hass. So Ollie misquoted. <laughs> and Ryan demanded to correct the record. So there you go. My God. Goodness, what a scandal. All right, my second story. Here's how much Katy Perry reportedly got paid to appear on MasterChef. That's from Nova. Thankfully for you guys, we are not a clickbait publication, so we can just tell you how much she was paid. She was paid apparently $100,000 for a single day of shooting. 
Where do we find that out? Who's leaking that? I don't really believe I mean, it. probably a source close to the production company normally. <laughs> do you not believe that? Do you not believe that she was paid 100K? No, I believe it. Like it seems, it seems feasible, even though it seems like an extreme amount of money. I'm also wondering where the networks are getting all of this money to throw at people like Katy Perry. But I just, it's a pretty round figure for one. And secondly, I just do wonder how something like that gets out because I feel like there'd be some pretty tight, pretty quiet contracts around it. But if they want to say 100K, they can say 100K. I would really love, like I know it will never happen because these production companies and the people who work under them are bound by such tight non-disclosure agreements. I would love to actually know because these figures are always wheeled out about every reality TV show, whether that's like I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, or it's Celebrity Big Brother, what have you. I would just friggin' love to know because it boggles my mind how much some celebrities make. I feel like I just have no idea how much money is actually out there. And I wonder, like, I know this might sound like a dumb thing to say, but whenever I hear about sums of money that big and people that earn that much money, I'm like, where does the money sit in your bank account? Like, do you have a bank account with just like millions of dollars in it? Or is that the dumbest thing I've ever thought? Like, or do you have it in a million different places and other people look after it for you? Like, where, what does your money look like when you have that much money? anyone has that like, much do you money, just have message like, me. <laughs> like, do you just have like a e-saver account where you can just yeah. log on and your phone? <laughs> and like transfer like a million bucks for your weekly spending out of like your 152. Anyway, that's a tangent if I've ever heard one. On to my third story. Carl Stefanovic's bizarre PR backtrack after blistering on-air takedown. That is from news.com.au. Zara, you put this in today. What is going on? It's an interesting one. So Karl Stepanovic has been in the headlines recently. I mean, we spoke about Karl Stepanovic last week about that whole hair debacle. But on the Sunday before yesterday, he appeared on the cover of Stella magazine, which is the Daily Telegraph sort of lifestyle lift out. And he did a big profile with them. But what's more interesting, Mish, is a couple of days later, he did a three-part feature with the Daily Mail. And he has absolutely ragged on the Daily Mail before. Like ragged on the Daily Mail, not on Instagram, not in private, but on the Today Show. I don't know if you remember his pretty blistering takedown of the Daily Mail back in June 2017. I remember it happening. I can't remember if it was about a series of pap photos that they published because they were really really coming for him after his divorce from Cassandra Thorburn and his moving on, I guess, with his now wife, Jasmine Yabra. They eviscerated him in any possible way, whether that was a pat photo of him eating chips or it was him saying an errant comment on the Today Show. They came for him day after day after day. What was his quote at the time? So what had happened is the Daily Mail ran a story talking about how he was staying in a New South Wales caravan park for a story with a female colleague and she was his producer. Like they were working on a story, but the inference was that something untoward was going on. And he said at the time, how would you feel if I judged you for what you're wearing this morning? How would you feel if I criticized your hair or mocked your makeup or shamed you for not wearing any? I want to take a couple of minutes right now to call out an organization that trades in these kinds of insults. It's a news website which seeks to profit from criticizing and publicly humiliating people, women especially. He also encouraged people to never click on that site. And he said, I am over it. I don't know what you think, but I hope Australia is over it as well. If you agree with me, the best thing you can do is to never go on that website. Next thing we know is three years later when Karl Stefanovic is on a bit of a press tour and it's interesting that he's on a bit of a press tour this week but I think maybe the Today Show's ratings might be slumping and they need to pick them back up. That he's done that with the Daily Mail, like you'd really think that they would have weighed up the fact that he'd made those quotes in the past and thought that maybe it wasn't worth it. What do you think? 
So what is he doing? So he's giving the Daily Mail exclusive interviews about his life because I read an interview this week. It was about how he's welcoming his fourth child, soon-to-be child. I think he's having a daughter with his new wife and how excited he was. And it's a very glowing, very positive piece about Carl and his foray back into breakfast television. So as you said, very interesting. I wonder if behind closed doors he was kind of gritting his teeth about needing to cozy up to the publication that tried to destroy his life. I think he would 100%, but there must be some sort of benefit here. I don't know what kind of benefit, but there must be some kind of benefit here that would encourage him to do this interview because I I can't understand why he would otherwise. Yeah, it's either something beginning with a C and ending with an ash or beginning with an R and ending with eightings. (laughs) Yeah, or R and eputation. <laughs> My fourth story. Kylie Jenner leaves fans stunned after stepping out with no makeup amid coronavirus lockdown. That is from Seven News. I am baffled as to why this story garnered so much attention, Zara. It was so strange. People posted this photo of Kylie Jenner without makeup in our Facebook group and said, I don't know if it actually looks like Kylie Jenner. It looked exactly like Kylie Jenner to me. I think this might be the people, and there were plenty of people, like hundreds of thousands of people who were baffled by the fact that this was Kylie Jenner without makeup on and saying that she looked like a completely different human. I'm wondering if those people have never watched an episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians because across the years that she's been on that show, she has looked like that photo so many times. It's not like every single time they film for Keeping Up with the Kardashians, they have perfect hair and perfect makeup. Sure, she's not appearing like that in the last few seasons, but as a teenager, she definitely did. She looks so much younger without the makeup and without the wigs and stuff that she tends to wear. And it just really looks like her on Keeping Up with the Kardashians a few years ago. I mean, this will sound like an incredibly simple point to make, but I don't think it's ever bad for us to see these kinds of photos at all and to kind of make the comparison between how she looks when four hair and makeup artists are working on hair in comparison to how she looks just walking out of her house like I think when it comes to Kardashians those kinds of reality checks are important simple but important and I don't think we can downplay that importance I agree with you I'm not quick to praise the paparazzi economy I'm not a huge fan of it but I will say it wasn't like this photo was trying to catch Kylie Jenner out she was beaming in the photo like she looked beautiful. She was smiling really widely. It wasn't like they were catching her looking at her absolute worst. So I agree. I really loved this photo and I think it was really well-timed because it kind of mimics how we're all looking on the outside right now. My fifth and final story for today's Quick and Dirty, Trini Woodall's partner, Charles Saatchi, accidentally walks naked into live stream. That is from news.com today. The screen grabs from these other funniest things I've ever seen. So Trini Woodall now has a, you know, she's that former TV stylist, Trini and Susanna. I loved that show when I was a kid. I don't know why. I probably didn't even understand it. Trini and Susanna is such a nostalgic, beautiful franchise. Well, that's the thing. I have no idea what they actually did. Like I couldn't remember an episode. I just remember sitting down and watching episode after episode. Trini now has a relatively successful beauty line called Trini London. And she was doing an Instagram live as a lot of brands are doing right now in terms of marketing. And her partner literally just has a little jiggle jog behind her, completely starkers, like completely starkers and has no idea what she's doing. How embarrassing. I love that she deleted it as well. It's so embarrassing. And I love that it's deleted. Like, can you imagine seeing, because he's 17. right? Her partner's 20 years older than she is. He's a businessman. Imagine seeing it in your camera vision that your butt naked partner is running around in the background behind you. It's just delightful. I just love it so much. 
Well, imagine you're right in terms of him being like a very recognisable serious businessman to then have like this little nude bum in the background of her video. It's so absurd. And what a beautiful note to end the cooking dirty on. Love it so much. I'm so sorry to Charles Saatchi, but that is the most entertaining story ever. (laughs) Coming up after the break, why the hell is Dr. Phil still given a platform? Plus, Netflix is too hot to handle has helped us reframe reality TV villains. They're not evil, they're just agents of chaos. But first, a word from today's sponsor. In case you missed it, Dr. Phil is not the medic the world needs right now. Yep, it seems the TV doctor who rose to fame on the Oprah Winfrey show, who also, by the way, doesn't actually have a license to practice psychology at all, doesn't seem to think the coronavirus pandemic is that bad, really, going on Fox News in the US to lament the country's shutdown. His comments sent Twitter into a spin, of course, and forced us, Mish, to deep dive the controversial TV doctor, yes, that's in inverted commas, and forcing us to wonder why in the world does this man still have a platform? Michelle, what do you think? Well, I think it's just ridiculous now, right? Like, I have no idea why this man is being used to even give opinions on psychological or mental health matters, let alone infectious disease matters. Like he's not an expert on this. Just because his name is Dr. Phil and he had a TV show called Dr. Phil doesn't make him a medical doctor. It doesn't make him a physician. And it was ludicrous that he was put on that program to give any form of opinion on how coronavirus spreads or lockdown laws because that's his, his opinion is as valuable as mine. I don't know and he doesn't know. Exactly. He went on Laura Ingram's show on Fox News and he said the fact of the matter is 40,000 people die a year from automobile accidents, 480,000 from cigarettes, 360,000 a year die from swimming pools, but we don't shut down the country for that, but yet we're doing it for this. What's interesting about that statement is it was incorrect. He said that 360,000 people die from swimming accidents a year, but apparently it's closer to 3,600. Got it wrong by a factor of 100. Like, how does that happen? Crazy. So it's not even a false opinion. It's actually misinformation too. Like, it's complete misinformation. I think what surprised me, Mish, about Dr. Phil is I didn't know that he didn't have a practicing certificate in psychology until now. Yeah, I've done a whole deep dive on this this week before we even prepared for the podcast because I was shocked to read some of the Twitter commentary. Obviously, after this quote came out, experts, and I mean actual experts, not just people who put doctor in front of their name, were weighing in. And lots were saying that not only was the stat wrong about the swimming pool deaths are, like you just said, the examples he gave were totally irrelevant in that it's not relevant if 40,000 people die a year in the US due to automobile accidents or 480,000 die because of cigarettes. Those are not infectious diseases. Also, on top of that, the government already puts in measures to try and reduce the number of deaths. We have road rules. We have laws about smoking advertising. We already bring in things for that. So I just want to say that as well, that it's just completely irrelevant what he went on that program and said anyway. As far as him not having a license to practice psychology anymore or to see clients one-on-one, I was gobsmacked to read Dr. Phil's history. I had no idea that he's basically a professional charlatan. And that's the term that was used to describe him by EJ Dixon in Rolling Stone this week. He wrote an opinion piece called Why Is Anyone Still Asking Dr. Phil for His Opinion? And I found that interesting. Professional charlatan really does seem to sum it up quite well. He's got a very checkered, very controversial past. I think the Britney Spears incident of 2008 really got me. For those who don't know what happened in 2008, 
Dr. Phil was invited to Britney Spears's home when she was in the middle of a very public breakdown. It was a really sad time for her and her family. And Dr. Phil was quite good friends with Spears's parents and they invited him there to sort of offer professional and personal counsel. And once he left that home, he issued a public statement on how Britney Spears was going. He said at the time, my meeting with Britney and some of her family members this morning in her room at Cedars leaves me convinced more than ever that she is in dire need of both medical and psychological intervention. I am very concerned for her. A family spokesperson came out after he did that and said it was a complete violation of trust. And he got a whole, whole heap of backlash about that. Yeah, and that's not the first time that he really put his client's health and well-being in jeopardy. In 1989, he was brought up on ethics charges for having an inappropriate non-physical relationship with a patient. He has had a formal criminal complaint filed against him in 2008 for practicing psychology without a license or certification. He, of course, had that Britney Spears incident, Zara. He also is someone who has been peddling diet and weight loss shakes and supplements despite having no relevant qualification to do that. He had to pay out $10.5 million to customers who proved that his weight loss supplements didn't work and didn't stack up to the claims that he made. It seems like he's actually done a lot of damage to the world. And I know that sounds like quite an extreme thing to say, but it really, when you read the kinds of things that he's been doing and the causes he's been peddling, it does feel very, very murky and very checkered. And he's not the only TV doctor that is sprouting a lot of misinformation and who is sort of being looked to for answers in times like this when they really have no expertise. I mean, earlier this week, TV personality and surgeon Dr. Oz appeared on Sean Hannity's program. And what he did is that he suggested that the US should open up schools. He said, let's start with things that are really critical to the nation where we think we might be able to open without getting into a lot of trouble. And that that last line is really telling here. I tell you, schools are a very appetizing opportunity. I just saw a nice piece in The Lancet arguing that the opening of schools may only cost us 2 to 3% in terms of mortality. Only I cost just- us 2 to 3%. Like that that phrasing those are lives. What do you mean only cost us 2 to 3% in mortality? Are you talking about child mortality? You're sending kids to school? Are you talking about mortality of elderly people? Like what people are you willing to give up? What 2 to 3% are you willing to sacrifice? It's quite a chilling statement. And I think the other word that really got me in that statement as well was a very appetizing opportunity, this idea that you could, you know, increase the mortality rate by 2 to 3%. What's also really interesting, Michelle, here is the Lancet Review actually argued in favour of social distancing, stating that closing schools alone would prevent 2 to 3% of COVID-19 deaths. So what he's done is looked at that stat and kind of flipped it and taken the opposite perspective. It's really concerning. I think television doctors in general, television doctors particularly out of the US, are something that really needs to be looked at. I mean, we grew up with this, right? Like we grew up, I remember daytime television when I was sick from school watching Dr. Phil and finding it really entertaining. And I remember as I became a teenager, I'd then tune in and it just got increasingly scandalous and sensationalized. And I remember feeling quite icky about some of the people, the vulnerable, mentally unwell people that Dr. Phil was wheeling out to then be scrutinized by the masses. And if you really think about it, Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz are two men who do something quite despicable. They build their careers off the back of vulnerable people. They use legitimate mental health concerns 
for ratings, fame, and profit. And at his show's peak, Dr. Phil was earning $15 million a year by doing this to people in far worse positions than himself. I just think it's pretty disgusting when you put it out like that. Yeah, well, totally. And I think it's the complete leveraging of of really vulnerable Americans is what he's done for his entire career. I was thinking about this, Mish, the idea that Dr. Oz was asked for comment on this. Dr. Phil was asked for comment on this. And Dr. Phil appeared on Lauren Ingram's show in the segment after Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, appeared on the show. And it's almost like those two opinions are weighted the same when they're appearing on the same show. And it feels like such a symptom of like comment culture, I think, where we expect everyone to have an opinion on everything because we ask them about it. And I do think in Australia in particular, morning TV tends to ask the most random, unqualified people onto panels and asks them their opinion on things. And it kind of perpetuates this cycle of forcing us all to feel like we need an opinion on everything. And not just that, but it also spreads misinformation because a lot of those opinions are completely uneducated. I agree with that. I think it's not only just right-wing or conservative media that is guilty of that. CNN last week did a broadcast of Mark Zuckerberg and his partner Priscilla Chan from Facebook where they discussed Facebook's approach to the coronavirus but then also weighed in on things like how it should be managed at a state and federal level. And I can't help but think, why do we care? Like, sorry, but what does Mark Zuckerberg know about governing a country and legal ramifications or medical ramifications? He's not a doctor. He's not a politician. He's a man who created a very successful social media platform. But for CNN to act like Mark Zuckerberg is the person we need to hear from on how to tackle coronavirus, in my opinion, is pretty much as bad as what Fox News is doing. I think we need to be careful about who we call an expert in times like this. Pete Evans is not an expert on coronavirus and a tech expert is not an expert on coronavirus. We need to be looking not even just to GPs. We need to be looking to people who are experts in how viruses travel amongst a community, amongst a population. I think it feeds this feeling that even people at a grassroots level need to have an opinion on things. And I say this as as someone who comes onto a podcast every week with an opinion, but I would say it's a little less intense when it's on pop culture and not infectious diseases. Yeah, that's the thing, Zara. We're more than willing to weigh in on social trends or what's happening on Instagram or the latest Britney Spears headline. But we are not going to be telling you guys what to do with your bodies or whether or not we should reopen schools or anything to do with medicine or political spheres. Because frankly, we're not experts in those things and we don't know shit about them. I do think there is a lack even in social scenarios where you might be sitting around with your friends having a drink where people admit that they don't know enough and therefore shouldn't have an opinion. Like I kind of don't mind sitting back and being like, I don't actually know because sometimes I'm just too tired to have an opinion. But we don't live in a world where that's encouraged nearly enough. Mish, the last thing that I wanted to touch on here when it comes to TV doctors is Seth MacFarlane did call out Oprah this week in a tweet and he said, Oprah has done some wonderfully altruistic things with her career, but the use of her platform to amplify the voices of dubious characters rather than legitimate scientists has been a disservice. I hope she will lend her powerful voice to correct it. I thought that was very interesting. I am so glad you brought this up. I find Oprah's role in all of this to be really interesting. I love Oprah. I think she is an incredible woman, an incredible force for change, particularly for women of colour. However, she did give Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, and another woman that I want to quickly talk about before we move on, Zara, Jenny McCarthy, their platforms. Now, maybe she never knew what these men and Jenny McCarthy stood for. However, when you lend your very large platform to people and you lift them up with 
with you, I think you need to be careful about what kind of messages you're then promulgating to millions, hundreds of millions of people. So Oprah not only invited Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz onto her show back in the early 2000s and made them megastars, she also gave staunch anti-vaxxer Jenny McCarthy her platform back then too. In her interview with Jenny McCarthy, Oprah praised her unwillingness, this is a quote, to bow to authority, her faith in herself, and her use of the internet as a tool for bypassing society's traditional gatekeepers. Days after Jenny McCarthy's appearance on Oprah, she went on to be invited to Larry King Live, Good Morning America, to spread her anti-vaxxer message even further. All these years later, her episode on Oprah Winfrey's show called Mother's Battle Autism, where she pushed the line that autism and vaccinations are linked, that is something that is completely debunked by science, by the way, it's still up on Oprah Winfrey's website. You can still go watch it. There is no clarification that it is incorrect. There is no acknowledgement of all the problems and the inaccuracies in that episode. And Jenny McCarthy now has a social media following of 1.4 million people and is a host on The Masked Singer US. She has created another person who has gone on to share deeply problematic messages. Yeah, and this is not to discount in any way, shape or form all of the good that Oprah has done because Oprah has done some incredible things for the world. But to have these people in the public eye who are spreading misinformation and dangerous messages I think means that she does need to come out and kind of say, you know what, a lot of what they're saying now is not helpful and it is dangerous and I no longer stand by them. I wanted to finish on a quote I read on Twitter, Mish, from Robin Masters who said, Dr. Phil isn't a medical doctor and isn't licensed to practice psychology in any state. From now on, I'm calling him Mr. Phil, who is with me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's amazing. Three, two, one. Well, 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 it appears Netflix has decided to step up its game and help us all survive the pandemic. First came Tiger King and now we have Too Hot to Handle, the streaming giant's new reality dating show where very hot people are banned from having sex with one another. The show has proven to be so popular it topped the Netflix charts in the US, the UK, Canada and, yep, you guessed it, here in Australia too. Zara, one contestant, Francesca Farrago, has gained 1.2 million followers on Instagram in a week since it aired. Let's start with the basics. What did you make of Too Hot to Handle? Okay, full disclaimer, I'm up to episode six, so I haven't finished the entire thing yet. But good God, it is a wonderful watch. I think it's the kind of show you don't know you need until you get sucked in. Like it is such a motley crew of contestants. And it is the kind of show that I think a lot of people could be interested in, particularly in the climate that we find ourselves in. I'm finding Ollie keeps suggesting that I should just watch it while he sits on his phone in the background like of course go ahead watch it I'll just sit on my computer and I'm like you're you're suggesting this a few too many times to seem like you're not interested in it at all it seems like Ollie is a couple of steps behind Mitch because Mitch and I watched eight episodes in a row without moving from the couch we were both obsessed with it granted we were very very hungover and eating like McDonald's and KFC while we were doing so but he is just as obsessed as I am I think he wants to watch it a second time through just to by the by as well I'm so glad Zara you are enjoying this show because when I recommended you watch it you were feeling sick early last week and I said to you put on too hot to handle it's so good and as soon as you said okay I'm putting it on I was filled with this like extreme fear that you were going to hate it and judge me for loving it so much because it is so deliciously trashy? Well, I actually have a very low brow taste in television, so you never really had to worry about me. For those who haven't seen Too Hot to Handle, even though it is trending at number one, it's basically a TV show where they get a whole lot of singles in a house 
and don't tell them that the reason they're in the house is so that they are banned from kissing or having sex. And what the host of the show, which is basically just like a robot through like a Siri service, I don't even know what it is, says to them at the start, there's $100,000 in prize money for every time you violate the rules, i.e. kiss someone or sleep with someone, the prize money plummets. And I think it's just the most genius concept in the world for a producer or a network because it means all they have to do is deprive contestants of sex and end up having to pay them less prize money at the end of it all. Like it saves them money and it works. It's amazing. And I love it as well because Netflix has found a loophole that network television just can't compete with. So Too Hot to Handle has a very similar vibe to Love Island. Very, very similar. I think they've taken a lot of leaves out of the Love Island handbook. However, they can one-up Love Island in that on Love Island at the moment, because it's so commercial, because they make such huge revenue from advertising partners, they need to be a bit PG-13. Like they can't be having sex on camera. They can't be explicitly speaking about really raunchy things because it's It's not brand safe. In the early days of Love Island, if you watch seasons one to three, you'll see they actually showed people in the same way that they did on shows like Jersey Shore or Geordie Shore having sex under the covers in their bedroom. They don't do that anymore. In fact, they're quite coy about sex as a topic. Netflix doesn't have to abide by the same rules. They don't have to give a shit about advertisers. They can show whatever they want about sex and talk about sex in a million different ways because their revenue model is so completely different. They make revenue off subscribers. Subscribers want to see sex. They don't need to pander to advertising dollars at all. And I think that's a really genius way to circumvent and beat the reality television programs we're watching on TV. Yeah, because they're all very heavily sanitized, aren't they? And this is not, goddamn, they have some like very extreme ways of talking about sex. Like, even, I mean, I'm a bit of a prude though, but sometimes the way they talk about having sex with each other is so explicit. I'm just like, oh, dad. <laughs> It's so good though. You feel like all encompassing power as well, because you watching it, you're like, I can have sex whenever I want. Like if you've got a partner and you're not breaking COVID-19 restrictions, of course, but none of them can. So you just feel really smug sitting at home as well. I do want to talk to you, Zara. You sent me a piece in Vice. It was written by Lauren O'Neill and Emma Garland, and they were talking about Too Hot to Handle and why it has been so damn popular. And I really adored one reason they gave. They kind of had it in different banners, that all the reasons that Too Hot to Handle is so good to watch. One of those banners was Agents of Chaos. And what they wrote is, every reality dating show needs an agent of chaos, an individual whose intentions are never quite clear, but whose whims provide the gravitational force of the entire group. They also, Lauren O'Neill and Emma Garland, pointed out that Agents of Chaos, when it comes to reality TV, are almost exclusively women. The players who determine the major plot lines, they stir up controversy, and they call all the pivotal shots. Yeah, it was a really interesting perspective on the traditional female villain that I hadn't read before. Also, I just loved the term agents of chaos. Like what what a term of endearment for someone. Like I am an agent of chaos. All I do is stir up shit 24-7. I am intrigued by this concept a little more the longer I've stewed on it, Mish, because I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Like I know it's a it's a more positive spin on a female villain and it kind of puts the power in their hands and makes them seem like the focal point of a reality show, but aren't we still just relying on really old sexist tropes and stereotypes in order to provide entertainment? Like, I still think having an agent of chaos relies on us as the viewer, hating or kind of despising the woman at the centre for all the reasons we're told we should. She likes sex too much or she's catty or she's dramatic. Do you know what I mean? 
I agree with you. I don't think that's the case with Too Hot to Handle. So if you guys haven't watched the show, if you've watched one episode, the agent of chaos in Too Hot to Handle is absolutely Francesca Farrago. And I would argue most people watching that show, at least finishing that show, do not hate Francesca at all. I've watched all episodes and if anything, I kind of have this weird, confusing love for Francesca Farrago. Like I know that some of the things she does on the show are morally dubious. I know she is not an angel by any stretch of the imagination, but I really appreciate her bringing the drama and being an interesting and complicated character. I know that's not the case with every reality show. I do want to give some examples, though, so that even the listeners in their head can come up with whether or not they think being an agent of chaos is a good or a bad thing. Locally, I think Kira Maguire from The Bachelor is the definition of an agent of chaos. Tully Smythe in Big Brother all those years ago. If you've watched Love Island UK, Megan Barton Hansen. If you watched Love is Blind on Netflix a couple of months ago, Jessica Batten, a.k.a. I'm 34, he's 24. Mm -hmm. I think love them or hate them, the agents of chaos who are women make these shows so friggin' interesting to watch. I agree with you and I guess I'm just wondering whether a man can be an agent of chaos. Like, And if there is, then maybe it's not a bad thing. We just never see a male agent of chaos. And when you say, you know what, I have a confusing love for Francesca on Too Hot to Handle. I don't hate her. That's a good thing, but it's also you, like you who kind of analyzes reality TV and pop culture and who wants to see these characters who are as complex as they are and not at face value. I don't think everybody is the same. So having a successful agent of chaos relies on an audience that still kind of hates the woman at the center. Yeah, it's a really good point that you make and it's true. I mean, I really appreciate and adore these unruly women who make television so damn good to watch. But at the same time, I acknowledge that not everyone will love them and not everyone will probably think about it as deeply as that. So it's a two-sided coin. I definitely think it's a more positive shift towards thinking of them as just female villains though. I think Agent of Chaos is definitely a step in the right direction. And I just bloody love the term. Like they are so Agents of Chaos and bloody go like wreak that chaos. I love it. I think I agree with you, though. It is a very positive term because what it means is that there are just kind of little devious things rather than villains who are out there to make everybody's lives worse. Do you know what I mean? It kind of acknowledges the game aspect of reality television and how they're just going into there to to mix things up a little bit rather than actively derail other people's lives. And that's the difference in it for me. And so I do agree with you. It's a step in the right direction when it comes to labeling. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think it's reframing it as playful. And if it's playful, then it's nowhere near as intense or as serious as what we sometimes talk about reality TV as. Totally. Hey, I think that is all we've got time for today. Thank you so, so much for listening. We so appreciate your support in this time as we record from the very bottoms of our bedrooms, if that's even a thing, Michelle. If you want more from us, we have actually popped every In Conversation episode we have ever done on our website. That's www.shamelessthepodcast.com. So if you want to deep dive the archives and listen to some of the really interesting interviews that we've done, you can find them there as well as a link to sign up to our newsletter, Mish. Absolutely. The newsletter goes out every Friday morning. We give you a read, watch, listen and eat recommendation courtesy of our lovely friend, Jessica Nguyen. The newsletters are going off right now and I'm so happy about that. So definitely check out our website. That's shamelessthepodcast.com. As for us, we'll be back in your ears on Thursday. We will be back then. Thank you so much, guys. See you then. Bye. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your 
ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.